Get ready for Mental Flock with Jeff and Bishop. Grab your snacks. It's about to get real. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mental Flog. I am Bishop. And I is Jeff. If you are just listening for the first time, I would suggest heading back over to episode zero. That is where you'll get the ground zero on us with some background information and explanation for episode one and episode two. This is episode two of the Phoenix Rising season. The last episode uh, was Jeff talking about his tower moment, and this will be me talking about my tower moment. Buckle up, because this is going to be a bumpy ride, Buttercup. So, uh, Jeff, I believe you uh, you possibly have a question for me. Oh, yes, we, we do have a listener question for you. It's a listener so, question. Yeah, this is a listener question. Okay, so the question is, if you were forced to enter a gladiatorial fight to the death and could not use any modern weapons, what weapon would you choose to defend yourself and why? I mean, do I get a weapon and a shield? Um, it, it just says you, you get a weapon. So I'm assuming everybody gets a weapon, probably just, you know, whatever standard, if you get a shield, they get a shield. I don't know. I, uh, I kind of feel like I'd have to go with some kind of spear. I I'm five, nine. And while my arms aren't tiny, I mean, I'm not like, you know, I have a big head and little arms T-Rex situation here, but I feel like some reach would probably benefit me. No, that's probably a wise call. You know, actually, throughout the history of medieval warfare and and whatnot, like everybody likes to make a big deal about swords, and but it, but swords were mostly ceremonial. Like it was the the spear and the bow and arrow that like dominated the medieval battlefield. I I feel like I don't probably have the aim or the dexterity for the bow and arrow. I I do okay with firearms, but the farther I can be from their sharp and pointy the better off I feel like I would be. Well, I mean, you can't be further away from their sharp and pointy than with a bow and arrow. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's, you know, how the bow and arrow was invented. Just, I want to stab that guy, but he's way over there. Yeah, but like, you know, if if I miss all those times and then they get up to me and all I have is the bow and no arrows. Yeah, then you're just fucked. Yeah, yeah. I I stick with the spear. I think that is my safe call. I think that is a wise choice. All right, and uh, Jeff lied. That was his question. Hey, we got to make this interesting. That being said, we do have a voicemail, and you are very welcome to leave us a voicemail. The number is 435-538-9556. We would like to get to the point where we have enough listener questions that we can uh, do some companion episodes and not just a once-a-month release like we're doing right now. So you know what to do. Like, Like, leave us a voicemail and stuff. And uh, for those of you with the social anxiety, uh, Jeff and I are not going to pick up that phone. It is set to go direct to voicemail, so you don't have to worry about actual human interaction. Yeah, you don't have to worry about me asking you, you know, what weapon you would use in a gladiatorial fight to the death. But, you know, if, if you so choose to, to embellish and tell us. You know, I mean, We're going to get some weird voicemails now, and I'm going to blame I mean, you. It's, it's America. Do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, now that we have those shenanigans out of the way, Jeff... Tell me my card, buddy. What's what's the card for this episode? Okay, the card that I pulled for this episode is the Seven of Wands. Now, the traditional artwork, you've got a man standing on a hill, and he's got, like, the Donatello Ninja Turtle bow staff, and he's trying to fend off a bunch of other people down at the bottom trying to poke at him with their sticks. And the meaning behind all of this is that this is all about learning to take that higher ground, learning how to defend that higher ground when you take it. This is a... 
coming to the point of what is it that you truly believe? Like, who are you? Like, what hill are you willing to die on? Like, learning to stand up for yourself, stand up for what you believe in. And yeah, and that's it. I feel like that's rather fitting um, for this story. Well, do tell. All right. I guess it's time for me to take you down my personal boulevard of broken dreams. Yeah. So fair warning, these episodes are about our tower moments or our fall. Uh, we are talking about when we hit our personal rock bottoms. Now, while these are not the most uplifting episodes, they do get to have a part two where the better days come. Uh, being people who own our shit, we don't hide, being, you know, hide the dark days and just give you the rays of sunshine that we are now. We are so sunshiny, Jeff. Yeah, speak for yourself about that one. I'd rather die in a gladiatorial fight to the death and have to tell my tower story again. <laughs> so the reason that we're doing this is that some of you are in your tower moment right now, whether you know it or not. Uh, we want to make you know that we have been, we want to let you know we've been to that dark place and that it really is possible to make it through uh, and to have a better life. Now, uh, it's not just going to be Jeff and I telling our dark day tales here. We have a special guest coming out for our next episode, and she has one hell of a story to share with us as well, and I am excited to hear it. So without further delay, time to knock over my tower. I was born in Old Lyme, Connecticut in 1987. My family is religious, and their chosen religion is Mormon, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. While it is a common religion here in Utah, where Jeff and I live, that was not the case in Connecticut. And while much can be learned by Googling, I'm going to give you just the Cliff Notes version. Mormons don't condone drinking, smoking, drug use, masturbation, premarital sex, R-rated movies, pornography, sex other than that of a married man and woman is also frowned upon. Now, while I'm no longer Mormon, I'm not here to talk shit on them. I am here to talk about my experiences, and this leads me to tell you about one of my personal rules for life. If someone has a happy place and it is not causing them mortal harm or harming those around them, let them have the damn happy place. A happy place is a hard thing to come across in this world, and you really should not mess with another person's source of happiness. Indeed. So back to the story, because I broke my soapbox. I'm uh, five foot nine and currently about 340 pounds. Now I tell you this because I've been overweight since about the first grade. These are some of my core memories. Uh, from growing up in old Lyme. When I was a preteen, or just barely a teen, I was out to dinner at Old Lyme Pizza Palace with my father. It was just the two of us that night. There was a, a you know, TV in the, the restaurant like you would see, and the show that was on that TV that night was My Wife and Kids. And it was the episode where Junior had to come home and tell his father that he'd gotten his girlfriend pregnant. Now, like I said, I'm preteen, just barely a teen. My father... He looked me dead in the eyes and said, if you ever have to come home and tell me you got some girl pregnant, just don't bother coming home. That's effective parenting right there. It, it's a core memory for me. Now, when I was 16, 17, I was working at Tire Country, which is a local gas station and service facility where we had repair bays and we had some mechanics. For whatever reason, my father had stopped by, and he was out in the bays joking with mechanics, and he told them, I have a plan to get my son to clean the yard this weekend. I'm going to tell him I've scattered a box of Twinkies in the yard and see if he cleans it up in the process of trying to find them. Now you see why I mentioned my weight. I have talked to my father about these situations as an adult, and he does not remember them. While these are core memories for me, it was just another Tuesday for him. Gaslighting! 
this means that these are not memorable moments for him. He has apologized to me for those, you know, times. But as you can tell, since I'm talking about it today, these are things that have stuck with me. I, uh, I moved out when I was 17. I came home after spending a, a summer on the, the East Coast, the lower East Coast, doing some third Picardy contracting jobs. And I had a few thousand dollars, which was really good for a 17-year-old back in that day and age. And I moved out to Idaho. I bought a one-way ticket. And uh, I actually flew out there with Dad. He was going out to see his family. And I was going to Sugar City, Idaho to to go see my buddy Charles and to learn how to lay carpet. And I was just kind of done being home. I I came back when I was 18. And uh, these are some of the adventures from then. When I was back in Connecticut... One of my friends, Ben Way, uh, had not heard from his dad in weeks' time. I pushed until we went to check on him, and we could get no response at the house, so we went to the local state police barracks, and they came back with us to the house. They managed to get entrance through a window, and uh, they sent through the smallest officer, and she came out the front door a short time later to let us know that his dad had passed some days ago in his bed. By the time they had processed the scene, the coroner had arrived, and it was well past midnight. Now, I was a volunteer firefighter in my town, and in making small talk with the police officers, they knew that, and somehow the coroner had been given that information as well. And since his assistant hadn't shown up, he asked me to help crack the body because rigor mortis had set in and it needed to fit in a body bag. Oh, this sounds traumatizing. And to put Benway's father's body in the bag and carry him out of the house for the last time. That stuck with me. Truthfully, I should have said no, but no is something that I wasn't great at at that time. This experience led me to what I call being a situational alcoholic, and I was drinking every day. I mean every day. Get through work, go over to my buddy's house, drink until it was time to go home, or pass out there. On one fateful night after a day of working, not eating, and drinking in the evening, I decided it was time to go home. I hit a tree at the end of his road going approximately 50 miles per hour. I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. I flew across the car. It was a Crown Victoria, big front bench seat, a boat, kind of like you talked about in our last episode. I knocked the rear view mirror off with my hand or my head. I don't know which. I broke the center, you know, pull out ashtray with my ankle. Ooh. And I impacted headfirst into the passenger side window of the car. At that time, the airbags went off and they blew me back into the bench seat, and I was laid out across the front seat of the car. There was still a lot of underage drinkers at my buddy's house, and I, adrenaline-fueled, ran back to his house, opened the front door, and said, everybody get the fuck out of here, I just crashed my car. And everybody scattered. My assistant chief found me sitting on the couch, having my own little meltdown, and he told me that Well, there was a state trooper at the crash scene, and he was rather pissed that I wasn't there. And I, at that point, had run out of adrenaline, and he half carried me. I half hobbled back to the accident scene. Um, My boss showed up, and my assistant chief was there, and they both talked to the officer and told him that I was basically a good kid, but I was going through some shit. And very thankfully, I did not get a DUI and a minor consumption ticket that night. I got a ticket for driving too fast for conditions. I was way too drunk to be driving that fast. I was very lucky. My parents, they were living in Pennsylvania at the time, and they were honestly not impressed that I didn't get a ticket. 
I don't remember them saying they were glad I was alive. They might have, but if they did, it was overshadowed by my father being upset that I was not incarcerated. I do remember them telling me I had issues, and I said I wished I had the chance to screw up more when I was younger, and to talk to them about it. And the response I got from my father was something along the lines of, I don't wish for that because I would have kicked your ass. This, dear listeners, was the perfect setup for conditional love. Because when I was going to church and doing what they wanted, I was loved so much more than I was making my own way and becoming the person and living life with my values. Yay, conditional love. This is, you know, laying the groundwork for codependency as an adult. Parents are people too, and while we are younger, we often think that they have all the answers, but truthfully, they don't. I think they did the best they could, and from what I know of their childhood, it seems like they were both better parents than their parents were to them. In the summer of 2006, I realized I was on the fast track to failure, and if I kept on my current path, my two most prominent options were death or incarceration waiting for me. I really didn't care for either option. My buddy Josh and I made plans to leave town and head back to Idaho. We ditched the parties and the binge drinking, and we legitimately played Halo 2 on the Xbox to keep our asses out of trouble. And we, this went on for a month or two while we saved money until we could leave town, and off to Idaho we went. I stayed in Idaho with Charles's mom, and Josh eventually went back to Connecticut. In 2007, I met what would become my wife in August of that year. We were both very young and from Mormon families. We, uh, we weren't especially good Mormons ourselves, and we were also both more broken than we had realized, and we never truly knew how to have those conversations and express that to each other at that age and at that time in our lives. On what was our third wedding anniversary, I was hours away in Montpelier, Idaho, on a family friend's farm helping assemble a used wheel line. It was a horrific project, but they needed that wheel line to help the farm be more productive and to make it through the season. While I was out there in the fields, she was back in St. Anthony, and while we had explored swinging and other such extramarital adventures at that time, she went out on her own and she lied to me about it, and that was my first brush with infidelity. Ouch. She had some secrets that finally came to the surface, and I'm not going to go into depth on those. You can make the assumptions you want to or need to. I did truly love her, and I wanted things to work out. My dad, I, I was planning on going to, to trucking school to become a long-haul trucker at this time, okay. but based on what had happened when I was gone for a few days, the thought of going to school and heading off on the road for months at a time, my anxiety couldn't freaking take that. I couldn't wrap my head around it. Understandably. My dad told me to go drop her off at her parents and go to school, and I said no. We tried to sort things out, and in October of the year 2010, we moved in with her family in Utah. We went back to church, and we were both disfellowed by a disciplinary council of the church for our adventures outside of the church rules. What this means is that we had to confess our sins to a bunch of older men with no therapeutic background who then judged us and put us on a religious probation of sorts. And uh, honestly, the bishop at the time had a personal bone to pick with my ex's family and some of the extended family members. And honestly, I don't think normally we would have been sent through that process, but I think he was enjoying himself. This is a... <clears throat> Another area where our lives run parallel, because my ex-wife and I, we weren't exactly the best little Mormons when we got married. 
and we didn't make it to the temple. And there was much to do, like much, you know, scandal or whatnot, because um, some of her family were general authorities in the church and whatnot. So when they found out we weren't going to have a temple marriage, they they tried to like squash the marriage entirely. Like, you know, you guys don't, they basically were like, you guys don't deserve, you know, a, a nice wedding if you're not going to be able to get married in the, in, in the temple. Uh, we did eventually go to the temple a year later, but yeah, we had to go through that whole disfellowship process where, you know, you sit there and, uh, you know, what they call a sacrament meeting, um, like, you know, where everybody just kind of sits around and like listens to the sermons and whatnot. And when they pass around the, the sacrament, if you're disfellowshipped and you're not allowed to take that sacrament, that's kind of a big, everybody gets to stare at you and know you did something wrong. You have to, you have to just, you know, pass up that sacrament while everybody else gets to partake. And then everybody, everybody that's there gets to stare at you and be like, well, what did they do? Oh yeah, well they did blah, 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 you know? So Jeff, I'm, I'm curious since you also had to go through a disciplinary council Looking back on it now with what you know, was that not the most awkward, interesting situation to go through? Oh, it was insanely awkward. I mean, it's intensely personal. And for all intents and purposes, like if I were to be able to look back or now being in the situation that I'm in now, like having lived more life, if I was to see a a couple, a young couple going through something similar like I would, I, I feel like I would have to reach out to them, let them know, Hey, like you're not broken. You're not wrong. You guys did something that's completely normal and natural, like in the process of what two people who are in love do and what these perverted old men are trying to put you through right now. That's what's wrong. Them trying to like make you feel ashamed, make you feel disgusted. Them trying to say that your love is now doomed because you didn't do things according to their standard. That's what's wrong. Well, it was like I was saying, like none of the people present at that council had any kind of therapeutic background. Indeed, they they don't. They're just... It's it's not impossible for somebody to have that background to be a member that is part of one of those councils, but it's also not highly probable. Yeah, and it's certainly not a prerequisite. That's so weird to think back on. I remember I had to read the Book of Mormon from cover to cover, and I had to read the Miracle of Forgiveness. Oh yeah, I had to. I had to do the same. Although, reading the Book of Mormon from cover to cover, that was something that uh, helped further cement my shelf breaking, as you know the, the term goes. Because when, because I think a lot of times in like Christianity, Mormonism, like if you actually do read these texts from cover to cover and pay attention to everything that's in them instead of just glossing them over, which is, you know, when you're in the habit of being religious or whatnot, like you just kind of gloss over it and you don't really like pay attention to like all of the stuff between the lines. But yeah, I started seeing things in the Book of Mormon that just did not add up, that just did not make sense geographically, did not make sense scientifically, just things happening completely out of sense for anything archaeological to line up it just didn't make any sense so anyway i'm rambling i'll shut up now well and i remember being told like you know this wasn't a punishment it was being done out of love oh yeah 
I don't remember what they said to justify the love of the punishment, but... Uh, you know, pissing on your head and telling you it's raining. Yeah, fun times, man. Uh, well, now we knew, know something new about each other. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we, we tried to go back to church and to be good members for a time. Uh, eventually, we got our own house. And within a short amount of time, we started exploring sexually again. I was 27 when we were living this double life of going to church on Sunday and inviting other men and women in our bed on the other nights of the week. I really couldn't mentally take the strain of the double life. Um, and with some of the new church guidelines that has been issued, I cannot stomach pretending to be Mormon anymore. And now what I'm talking about is a, a section of the church handbook got released, and it was a new rule, basically, that if you were wanting to become a member of the church, but let's say you're living with your parents and they were gay. You had two moms, mm -hmm. you had two dads, whatever. You had to renounce your parents and move out of the house in order to become a member of the church. You had to renounce your family and move out of the house to become a member of the church. Yep. I remember this. Cue the... Cue the first mass resignation event, which I participated in. That's when I formally submitted my resignation. It was at that time that no matter what my upbringing was or my thoughts were on the church or where I was at, I, I had no internal conflict about saying I was done at this point. My father did not take the news well, and he ended up hanging up on me when I finally called him and told him I was done with the church. We kept on our sexual exploration and eventually more infidelity found its way into our lives. We progressed to an open marriage because, well, I couldn't get cheated on if it was open, right? Wrong. <laughs> this time it was a long-distance emotional affair, and for some reason that truly hurt the most. There is, there is definitely such a thing as emotional affairs, and I think those can be more painful than, you know, act, you know, than, than sexual affairs. I mean, it's, if it's just sex... I mean, that's, that's not as painful in my book as, you know, your partner, like the love of your life or who's supposed to be the love of your life, going behind your back and, and carrying on like an emotional affair, or, you know, things that they should be telling you and like when they should be relying on you for emotional support and you've just got, gone, you, they just throw you under the bus and they found this other person that they're confiding in in secret. I, I can agree with that. It was hard, man. I thought of ending the relationship at that point. But I told myself that this would be the case in any relationship. Nobody would ever treat me better. And I was broken. I put my head down. I just dealt with it. And like whenever something like this happened and I caught her, she was angry. She wasn't upset with herself, with her actions. She was angry that she got caught. Wrap your head around that. Lack of accountability. Yeah. So yeah, I, I put my head down and I, I just rolled with the punches. Eventually she got pregnant and in 2016 we were gifted a beautiful baby girl. It was a traumatic birth with a C-section and it got infected and it took her a long time to recover and it, it was hard, man. During this process, I, I gained a new partner and we entered the world of polyamory. I felt loved. I felt alive and it was amazing. I thought in my broken-ass self at the time that I was never going to feel that way again. So to feel it again and to be like, oh, this is real, this is a possibility, that was a trip. 
we we would play together, all three of us, and sometimes just the two of us. And at the time, my, my wife found her own partner as well. Eventually, my partner cheated on me. And I'm not talking the wife. I'm talking my polyamorous partner. And that's another one of those unspoken rules about polyamory is that, yes, it is possible to cheat and be cheated on in polyamory. I kept it from my wife because, well... I didn't want things to end, and she knew how bad I get jacked up when I get cheated on. When uh, that partnership with my polyamorous partner ended, surprise, surprise, she ended up dating the guy she told me not to worry about, who was just a friend. I had known the truth, but I had still allowed her to lie to my face and to take it with a grin because I didn't want to lose her. She meant a lot to me. So no matter what shit she had done to me, I, I didn't want to lose that connection. I'm a glutton for punishment sometimes. In August of 2017, things came to a head. I lost my shit. I was falling apart, and my wife and I were fighting, and all the things that she had been okay with and supportive of, suddenly she was mad about. And I got to hear about how much she hated this or that, and there was so much resentment. There really was. Oof. Know a thing or two about that. Yeah, it's it's you get blindsided, don't you? Yeah, that's another one of those weird parallels, bro. Yeah, loving, supported. Yeah, go do this. Yeah, go do that. And then all of a sudden, well, I didn't like this, and I didn't appreciate this. And oh, yep, I know, I know too well about that. Shortly after our tenth wedding anniversary, while we attended our very first and only session of marriage counseling with one of the most crackpot therapists I have ever met in my life, in that session, I uttered the words, "I want a divorce." The therapist tried to sway my decision by talking about how expensive it was to get divorced. Now, I had done my homework. I had talked to my friends, and I knew it could be done affordably. That was her sole reason for not going ahead with the divorce was the cost of it. We left the session. We got some dinner and picked up our child from her parents. She packed a bag and went to have ice cream with my former partner. That's where she spent that night. Took my daughter with her. Saying I wanted to get divorced was one of the hardest choices in my life because I knew, without a doubt, I'd be giving up on a lot of special moments with my daughter. And I, I had never fully realized how much I wanted to be a dad. And that, that killed me. And it still bothers me. I was a broken and lost human being. And I went back and forth and wanted to fix things. We still fought. And she told me that I was manipulative, that I was a narcissist, and that I was codependent. I don't know if you've ever had those things told to your face before. Um, I have. Like, and it does mess with you, especially when it's... Yeah, but I mean, that's part of the game and the manipulation is the... It's the crazy making, making you feel like you're the one who's the crazy one, that you're the one who's the manipulated one. And there's a lot of um, what they call reaction abuse in that, where it's... They try to pin you into a corner... And then when you finally react to their abuse, that's when they're like, aha, I got you. See, this proves that you're the crazy one, you're the manipulative one, and you're the abusive one. The final straw for me in all this was the point, and the point where I knew I had nothing left to fix, was when we were talking about possibly trying to work on things, and she told me that the last person she cheated on me with was her best friend. And he would always be a part of her life. And for me to say I wasn't okay with that was controlling Jeez. If we were ever to get back together, I would need to become a completely different person. 
and she would have to be able to discover each and every new thing about me because I was so changed. It didn't hit home for me the gravity of that statement until I was rehashing this conversation with a friend of mine, and she paraphrased it with, so basically throw away the whole man and start over? That cut a bit deep with that realization. I had my daughter every other weekend, and I drank on the weekends I did not have her. I drank heavily. At that point in time, I knew two things. I was good at fucking, and I was good at working. So I did those two things in abundance. I chased a lot of pretty red flags. I learned a lot about energy, because the energy I put off was the party boy energy, and I didn't have to really try to find anybody to play with. They found me. I'm sure you've uh, personally experienced that in your life too, Jeff. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a trip to really learn about energy on that level. But yeah, I, I chased a lot of pretty red flags. I dated some people who in the end were excellent life lessons, but not amazing partners. I'll feel you on that one. Roughly one year after I said I wanted a divorce, it was final. I hated our wedding anniversary date, and every time it came around, I was upset because not only was it the day we lost Robin Williams, it was a reminder of my failure as a husband in life. 2017 was the year we split. 2018 and 19, they were a blur. I was in many ways miserable, but it was not until a situation ship in early 2020 that ended with me thinking I was in love and finally happy and her going back to her ex-fiance that I truly began the path of healing. While there were moments in time I did the right thing from December of 2017 on that truly led me down a better path, it was a lot of baby steps but those aren't for this episode. For now, this is the end of my highlight reel of personal tragedy. I am broken, I am alone, and I am hurting. There is hope there. Now, for a bit of insight and a disclaimer, I am not a perfect person. I am not without fault in this story. This is honestly the most descriptive I've ever been of these events, the most open and public I've been about it. My ex-wife has her own issues and problems as I have had and do have as my, of my own. The telling of this series of events is not to villainize her. I wish her the best and respect what a good mother she is to our child. I tell you all this, dear listeners, so you can truly understand my fall and the pain that I went through without exiting this life. There were thoughts of suicide, and I am truly here today because when I was ready to take that plunge into the next great journey... One friend among many that got a goodbye message acted against all odds, and she found my ass and pulled me from the fire. I sent a lot of goodbye messages that day. It is entirely her fault and her fault alone that you now get to listen to this podcast. That friend is the very one who so cheerfully greets you at the start of every podcast. It's her who records the introductions. That's my tower, Jeff. Well, that hits like, a ton of bricks. Yeah. I gotta, gotta say, I mean, you're definitely a lot more eloquent in the way that you tell your story than I am. I think, I feel like mine was a lot more scattershot, kind of a lot more. Yours is like, you know, kind of a straight line, and mine's like a lot of winding roads. So, but I think, you know, what you said there, I mean, it's very poignant about, like, telling the stories. It's not to, you know, we're expressing a lot of pain, but it's also, uh, we're not trying to villainize anybody. You know, we're trying to own our own bullshit in the situation, like realize like where we went wrong, you know, where we need to improve um, still. But, you know, I got to hand it to you, though, because, I mean, you're saying like how difficult it was sitting there in that therapy session saying like I want a divorce. But that card that we pulled earlier, that 
that seven of that uh, seven of wands, the moment which you know you you're finally taking a stand. Yeah, that was the moment that that card was pulled for you. So that's the moment that you finally had that hill. You finally like stood up. You finally took the ground for yourself. And yeah, it wasn't perfect because you know as the image in that card you know goes, like you have like all of these other sticks that are prodding at you, and you don't know which way to turn to try to bat them away. But you finally stood up for yourself. I've been seeing, like, you know, throughout your life since I've known you. Yeah, there's been, there. I mean, we're not perfect. Yeah, I've seen, like, ups and downs. I've seen, you know, your highs and lows. But I got to hand it to you. Like, I've seen you go through some shit that, like, I know old Bishop would have just rolled over and just would have would would have just taken it. And would have just been like, oh, well, well, that's the way that things are. But no, like, the Bishop now, the Bishop that, you know, I'm proud to call my brother. No, like he's mustered that fuck off energy that we've talked about <laughs> earlier. And he's stood up and he's like stood in the face of, you know, people trying to take advantage of him and whatnot. He says, you know what? That bullshit's not going to fly. There's the door. Don't let it hit you where the good Lord split you. You know, and it's, it's funny. Some of the red flags I dated, one of them was manipulative and controlling. Um, well, two of them at least really were. I, I dated a lot of life lessons and the codependent, the controlling and the manipulative, I have dated different versions of that person. And it brought to my mind to the forefront of what that really looks like individually. Some of them are really cute and we had some fun. At the end of the day, I'm grateful for the life lesson in that they're no longer in my life. Now, like I said, I, I am far from fucking perfect, but I do own my shit. And uh, that really was the deepest I've ever gone into that tower story publicly. You know, accountability holds a lot of weight. That, uh, that friend that records the intro rents a room from me in my house. And I, I wrote this episode last night before I went to bed. And it was about 11.30 midnight-ish when I finished writing this. And I hadn't reflected on the fact that I almost ended it all and that I'm literally here today because of her in a while. I had to go wake her ass up, give her a hug, and I might have cried a little bit last night. No. It, uh, it was very emotional to reflect on all this so deeply. For those of you struggling with things, trying to make sense of things, write it the hell out. It makes you view it differently, and you connect with it differently. Like what you were saying about how you're now roommate, pretty much your angel that like pulled you up from the wreckage. Uh, I was lucky enough to, to have a handful, um, you know, and these are, you know, people that I love and cherish dearly. Like they ever call me, I don't care if they're halfway around the world and it's three in the morning, like I'll be there for them. But yeah, I mean, no man's an island. And if you find yourself in that dark place, I mean, reach out. Here's the thing about that time in my life. I, I messaged a few people. I got a few phone calls. I said some goodbyes. There was a lot of crying. And she hounded the shit out of me and wanted to know where I was. And I flat out lied about my location. There was no reason she would have been able to or should have been able to find me. I turned off every location setting on my phone. I was committed that I was done. And she found my ass. And it's all her fault. You have to listen to this podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff... Questions, commentary, thoughts? Oh, I think we've gone through some heavy stuff tonight. 
gotten like you know, I, I I don't know, man. I I I don't think my parents signed my permission slip to go on this field trip. <laughs> oh, it it really has been an emotional ride going through this. In a few short episodes, it's going to get better, guys. And by better, I mean light at the end of the tunnel that's not a train this time. Because <laughs> as you can tell, Jeff and I are both still here, and we're talking. Yeah, you know, and, you know, and, I mean, if you're in that deep, dark place, I mean, yeah, it's like, it's going to get better. It won't be perfect. It'll get better if you allow it to. Yep. If you choose to wrap yourself in the comforting blanket of depression, you will stay there. Yep. Like, first step to moving forward is you have to get sick of your own bullshit. And a lot of the friends I had in my drinking every other weekend timeline in my transformation, I can't call friends anymore. And a lot of them are still living that life. And they talk a really big game, but they put zero skin behind it and they just do the same shit different day like I did when I was in Connecticut in 18. That's you know a tough thing that Pete, you're going to find throughout life. Anytime that you make major movements forward, you're going to lose people. You're going to lose people because they're going to take a look at you moving forward and they're going to become bitter about that. They're going to project their own insecurities into the situation because they don't want you to move forward. They want you to stay back with them because seeing you move forward is making them have to take a look at their own situation and then start making excuses as to why they can't move forward too. It's so that, true. You know, it's part of life. Like you want to see who your true friends are. I say first get married and then get divorced because you're <laughs> gonna you're gonna lose friends when you get when you get married, and you're gonna lose friends when you get divorced. And if you have a friend that's been there when before you got married, and you have a friend that's still there after you get divorced, you know that's a true friend. That is a true fact. I have one of those friends as well that also lives with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there were a lot of good people during that very dark time in my life. And the one that came and saved me was in a position to be able to. Then she truly wanted to. And there were some people who gave a shit, but they weren't in a position or even in the state to do anything about what I was intending to do. So there are some people that have been with me for a long time that mean the world to me. My circle's a lot smaller than it was pre-2017, though. Oh, yeah. It's about quality, not quantity. 100%. Well, guys, I think that wraps up my tower moment. I hope everybody's feeling okay after that one. I'm going to go have some water and vape because I need some nicotine and to calm down a little bit. <laughs> do, you, do you need a hug? Do you need a blankie? Why are you trying to touch me, Jeff? Do you, do you need me to, like, read you a, a bedtime story? <laughs> well, everybody, uh, for our next episode, it won't just be these two talking heads. You'll actually get to listen to somebody new. And like we said earlier, send us some voicemails. Give us a reason to make a companion episode. We'll deliver. You just got to help us get there. Like and subscribe and, and you know, send, send us your questions and stuff. You know what to do. All right, everybody, we will see you for episode three of Phoenix Rising Season with our special guest. Good night, everybody. Bye!